As we turn now to the word of God, please bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we humbly bow before you and ask as we come to your word that you would please work in our hearts. Where there is ignorance, teach us. Where there is sin, please convict us. Where there is discouragement, please encourage us. Where there is anxiety, please give us peace. And we ask that you would please open our eyes that we may see the wonderful truths that are in your word. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Well, we return today to our study of Luke 3 where the ministry of John the Baptist has highlighted the importance of biblical repentance. And so if you aren't there already, I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 3, the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. In 1860, 1860, the Puritan Philip Henry preached on the doctrine of faith and repentance from several texts of Scripture. It was a a regular theme for him, repentance and faith. And he said this, he said, Some people do not like to hear much of repentance, but I think it is so necessary that it's so necessary that this, if I should die in the pulpit, I should desire to die preaching repentance. And if I should die out of the pulpit, I should desire die practicing it. Whether he's in the pulpit or whether he's out, he wants to be either preaching repentance or practicing repentance. It's so necessary. It's so foundational to the Christian life. In fact, J.C. Ryle, the bishop of the 1800s, once said, repentance is one of the foundation stones of Christianity. One of the foundation stones of Christianity. And yet, there's hardly anything written about repentance these days. There's so few sermons on repentance. Repentance is being lost in our culture and even in our churches. And yet, there is no gospel without repentance. There's no good news to sinners unless they repent. And so repentance is absolutely crucial. And we began looking at three characteristics of repentance from our text. But before we begin to look at those characteristics, let's read the text together. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonidus, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. It's in these verses, as we examine the ministry of John the Baptist, that we will see three characteristics of biblical repentance. And as we examine these characteristics, we want to see whether biblical repentance is a part of our lives, whether it characterizes you and me. Last week, we looked at in the first six verses at the first characteristic, and that is that repentance is required for divine forgiveness. Repentance is required for divine forgiveness in verses 1 through 6. It's in these verses that we saw the message that John went out to proclaim to Israel. And it was a message that called Israel to repent as displayed in a baptism, a, a submersion into water, representing their separation from their former life, representing their cleansing of the sin that they need from God. John, it says, exploded on the scene declaring this message to God's chosen people that they were in need of reconciliation with God. He said they needed to come into the water, receive his baptism, and turn away from their sins. John himself couldn't offer forgiveness, but he was preparing God's people for the Messiah, for Jesus, the one who could offer forgiveness. The one who could indeed forgive sins. The one who was salvation himself. And so John's preparatory ministry of, of going into Israel and preparing the people for Jesus who was coming soon after him was in fulfillment of the prophecy given in Isaiah 40. And we studied that last week. Luke quotes it for us in verses 4 through 6. Isaiah 40, the prophet is speaking about God's people being prepared for the arrival of God's salvation. And that's exactly what would happen and what came in the person of Jesus. God's salvation came. As Simeon had acknowledged soon after his birth that his eyes had seen the salvation of God, and that was in Jesus. And now, while John's ministry was a pre-cross ministry. In, in essence, John's ministry is an Old Testament kind of ministry. This is before Jesus has died and risen again. There's no cross. There's no resurrection that the faith looks back to. The gospel is merely this gospel in terms of an Old Testament context, but it still has many lessons for us, just like the Old Testament has many lessons for us. And here, John is preparing people for Jesus. We can learn some things here as well. And what we saw here in these first six verses is that we too must repent if we are to receive divine forgiveness. Just like John's audience, just like the Jews of the first century needed to turn to God, needed to 
be uh, needed to repent in order to receive that divine forgiveness, so too we in the 21st century must repent of our sins, must make a turn, a change of mind, change of heart, and change of life where we are no longer going the one direction, but we are turning and going uh, in the completely opposite direction, away from sin and towards God. We looked at how repentance is the entry gate for salvation. And from this, we turned to the Puritan Thomas Watson, who helped us by giving us six ingredients of repentance. And if you haven't watched last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back and do so, so you might hear those helpful uh, six ingredients of what is to be found in our repentance. So these first six verses, we saw that repentance is required for divine forgiveness. This morning, we're going to look at two more uh, characteristics of repentance that we find in these verses. The second characteristic that we find of biblical repentance is that repentance is motivated by looming judgment. Repentance is motivated by looming judgment. And we see this in verses 7 through 9. John is looking to motivate his audience to turn to God, to repent by speaking of a judgment, a condemnation, a wrath that is soon to come upon them. And it's here in verses 7 through 9 that we hear from John the Baptist for the first time. And Luke records for us John's message to these first century Jews. Look at verse 7. He says, And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And then look down in verse 9. He says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But in the middle, he's, in verse 8, he says this, Bear fruits keep in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, verse 7 says that he addressed the crowds. We don't know who's all included in the crowds. It's mentioned here in 7 as well as verse 10. We know from the other gospel writers, particularly Matthew, that it included religious leaders such as Pharisees and Sadducees, but no doubt it included a lot of the, the common Jewish people of that time as well. It was a hodgepodge. It was a mix of people from Israel. And we also know that there were uh, soldiers there and tax collectors listening to his message as well. So people from all walks of life. But what characterized these people who were there was their desire to be baptized by John. They had come to be baptized. Or maybe some were simply curious at this man, John, and his message, and they came to kind of hear what was being taught. But there was something about what this man was speaking about and the hubbub that was getting sent throughout the, uh, the nation that caused them to go out into the wilderness. Again, we looked at the location. This was in around the Jordan River. This was not around the major cities, the major dwelling places of Israel. They, people had to travel a long way to get out to John. And it wasn't in the, the lush uh, area of Galilee. This was out in the desert, and that's why it's called the wilderness. People had to make a commitment to go out there. There was something that was drawing them there. And so they're there. John's looking to prepare them for Jesus, for the Messiah, preparing them so that they might receive the salvation of God. But John pulls no punches. He doesn't deliver a feel-good sermon. 
He doesn't deliver a message that is just to pat them on the back, give them a little hug, and send them on their way. He preaches with boldness. He preaches with scathing conviction. Because, get this, he tries, he's trying not to build up his hearers' self-esteem, but he's trying to tear down their self-confidence. John is not trying to build up his hearers' self-esteem, but to tear down their self-confidence. A confidence in their own righteousness, so that they might walk through the door of repentance. And so there's three things we see here about his message. The first is the expectation of judgment. He declares clearly the expectation of judgment. And this is really the theme of, of this paragraph because verse 7 and 9, it's bookended. The, all of his whole message is bookended by this idea of wrath and of judgment. It's a coming judgment. Verse 7 warns them to flee the wrath to come. And verse 9 warns that this judgment is coming soon. That is coming someday, but it's coming soon. And so, Let's look at this expectation of judgment in verses 7 and 9. The first thing out of John's mouth is a stinging rebuke. Again, he goes 0 to 60 right off the bat. He he calls them, you brood of vipers, you children of snakes, you offspring of serpents. Now, if we know the biblical storyline, where's the first place that serpents and snakes come into that storyline? Well, it's Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, where Satan enters the garden seeking to tempt Adam and Eve to sin against the word of God. And from that point on, there's enmity because of God's curse between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And here, John, speaking to God's chosen people, says that they are of the offspring of the serpent. Again, he launches into his message in the deepest, most striking way. He goes right for the jugular, right for the heart. John is calling these people offspring of Satan. And John's not alone. Jesus, John 8, 44, calls the religious leaders, says, you are, of the chil- of, uh, you are children of your father, the devil. So Jesus continues that same theme, showing you're not children of God you are actually showing yourself to be children of Satan. But after calling them children of Satan, he then asks them a question. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And it's a a question that really, uh, in asking the question, functions as a rebuke and a warning. He's, He's trying to say, listen, you should be fleeing from the wrath to come. You should be fleeing. Just like snakes, when there is a brush fire that begins to to go through a a grassy field, snakes slither out of their holes and try to flee the flames. So you, brood of vipers, should be seeking to flee the flames of the wrath of God. You should be slithering out of your holes. You should be seeking to get away from the flames. Now it's interesting that Matthew and Mark record John the Baptist preaching a message of the kingdom being at hand, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Almost this positive, na- this positive thing about you need to turn from your sin and turn towards the kingdom, turn towards the king. And here, in Luke's, as Luke's recording of John's message, he 
highlights rather the, the negative side of it, the repent. What are you turning away from? Why are you f- repenting? Why are you fleeing? Well, it's because of judgment. Because you see, with the coming of the Messiah, there will be life for those who enter the kingdom and death for those who don't. There will be life for those who embrace the king and have repented of their sin, and there will be death and judgment and wrath for those who reject the king. And so there are really two sides of the same coin. As the Messiah, the king comes, there's potential for both life and death, life and judgment. But again, remember, we need to remember how shocking this would have been for this audience. They were God's chosen people, and they were being told that they align rather with God's enemies than with God's friends. They aren't in the boat that they thought they were in. They aren't on the team that they thought they were on. And so the question is, are they going to accept this warning? Are they going to listen to John's words? Are they going to change directions? Are they going to repent of their sin and turn towards God? Will they admit and recognize that the fire of God's wrath is not just coming for the Gentile nations, which they believed would happen? Yeah, incinerate those heathen Gentiles. No, John says, this wrath is going to come for you too. You cannot escape it unless you repent. What is this wrath that is to come? What is John talking about? Well, it's an allusion to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, which is found throughout the Old Testament, was a day of, uh, that the day of the Lord encompasses many different events, but describes this end-time eschatological judgment that would be coming upon the whole world, but would also focus upon Israel. For example, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, Isaiah 13, 9, says this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Or uh, Zephaniah chapter 1. In, in fact, I invite you to turn there. Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah is a, a prophet, a minor prophet in the Old Testament. Um, it is soon to the very near the end of your Old Testament if you're not sure where it's at. It's in some of those little books right before you get to Matthew. Zephaniah chapter 1 also describes this day of the Lord and how dreadful it really is. God's not just going to come and slap people on the wrist and say, you've done a bad job. But the holy God of this universe who created these creatures out of dust called humans, who then rebelled against him, God is going to come and strike just fury and just wrath. We all are deserving of the wrath of God. And that will come on the day of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, and against the lofty battlements. Look at this, verse 17. I will bring distress on mankind, so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither shall their silver nor their gold shall be able to save them, 
to be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Friends, this is a bleak picture. And this is when the judgment of God, the wrath of God, will come against all mankind. No one can escape this unless they run to the Messiah. And this is what John's ministry was seeking to do. John knew this was coming. And it would fall upon even Israel for their unfaithfulness. And so he's saying that in order to escape God's wrath on the day of the Lord, the Jews must repent of their sin and come to God in humility and confession. In other words, he's saying that just because they're a Jew, they're not going to escape. Uh, they're not going to be on the saving side of the Messiah. They're not going to be able to escape this just because they're Jews. They can't stay as, they're, as they are and experience the salvation Jesus brings. But going back to Luke, Luke chapter 3, verse 9, he continues to ratchet up the pressure. He, he turns up the heat. He, in essence, takes some billows and is, and is blowing it on the flame so that, that those Jews there listening to him in the first century would feel the heat of the wrath of God to realize that this is right here. It's looming over them. Look at verse 9. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice the urgency that he speaks. He says, even now. He doesn't want his listeners to comfort themselves and think that there's a judgment far off, but to think that even now it is right there. Even now your fate could be determined. The shadow of the judgment cloud hangs over them now. He uses the analogy of a gardener, someone going through and checking out the trees within his garden and looking to see if there's any fruit, to see if there's good fruit upon it. And if there's not, then he is he's cutting them down and throwing them into the fire. They're worthless. They're not accomplishing what he intended. And so the Jews may think that judgment's not near, that they're about to be on the salvation side, that soon the Messiah is going to show up and is going to release them from Rome and they're going to have political deliverance and they're going to be their own nation. They're going to be able to, to rule the world with the Messiah. But John says, wait, not so fast. Not so fast. You think you're on the Messiah, side of the Messiah, but you're not. The axe is laid at the root of the tree, he says. The axe is it's, it's as if the... The woodsman has brought the axe up, and in that split second before it starts coming down is when John's preaching. He says the axe has already been, been raised. It's ready to drop. And he says, every tree, therefore, every tree. He's speaking of individual trees, and I believe he's then speaking to individuals in his crowd. In other words, here he's not speaking about Israel as a nation that's going to be judged as much as it is individuals that will be judged. No one is safe apart from repentance. John knew that the people there standing, listening to him, would try to convince themselves that they're okay, and they, they wouldn't be included in this fiery judgment. And that's why, after addressing the expectation of judgment, he then turns and addresses the confidence in judgment, their confidence in judgment. Look at the second half of verse 8. eight the second half of verse 8. He says, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. And do not begin. No, 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 no. Don't even start. 
Don't even try to say that you have Abraham as your father. That's not going to cut it, guys. It's not going to cut it. Now, Abrahamic lineage was a point of great pride for the Jews. Truly, it was with him and his descendants that God had made a covenant. Genesis 12 showed in circumcision, which every Jewish male experienced, was a sign of that covenant. And throughout the Old Testament, as they read their scriptures, they saw that the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the anchoring point for Israel's relationship with God. They would point back there. In fact, even in the Exodus, as God was looking to redeem Israel, he was saying that he was doing this to fulfill the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember that when God was ready to destroy Israel at the golden, after the golden calf incident, that Moses intercedes for Israel, and he particularly uh, invokes the promise made to Abraham, reminding God that if he destroyed this nation, that he would be breaking his promise to Abraham. And so, the, in John and Jesus' day, the Jews thought that because their affiliation with Abraham, they were safe. But John says, no, you can't find any security in your ancestry. You can't find any security in the fact that you are born a Jew. He kicks out the spiritual cru crutches that they were leaning upon. And you could hear someone maybe object and go, wait a minute, John, if, if, if what you say is right, then, then how will there be a people for Abraham? If we're all chopped down, how can God's promises be fulfilled? You see, God needs us. We can't be disposed of. The axe can't chop us all down. God needs us to fulfill his promises to Abraham. And that's why John anticipates this and definitively says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He says, don't think that God needs you. God can create children however he wants to. He doesn't need you. The point that John is trying to make is that becoming one of God's true children is not a matter of inheritance, but of God's power and work. God can bring spiritual life from wherever. He's not limited by human means, and he certainly does not need that first century generation of Jews. So if, they're, if they can't trust their lineage to save them from judgment, how can they escape this judgment? How can they flee this wrath? Well, that's where we see in verse 8a, the first part of verse 8, the avoidance of judgment. The avoidance of judgment. John simply says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Nestled within his message of this looming judgment, this looming expectation of judgment, John shows the path to safety. They must repent of their sins. And while there is a definitive event in which they should turn and be baptized there on that day, this is not just a one-time event. It, repentance is to be something that they should continue to be bearing fruits. There should not just be one fruit on that day. There should be continual fruits. He doesn't want people to come and be baptized and then think that they've got their spiritual ticket stamped, stick it in their back pocket, and I can go live however I want to. Who got that taken care of. It's not a matter of checking a box and moving on with life. It's something that must continue on. 
And particularly, he says that there is concrete action that must accompany this baptism. In other words, they can turn from their sin, turn to God, be baptized to evidence that. But then he's saying, you need to continue to show that you have repented. Continue to show a changed life. Bear fruits. Your life should evidence the fact that you have truly repented. You shouldn't be going back to your old ways. You shouldn't be uh, uh, going back to your old sins. You need to keep bearing fruits. The change must be continually on display. In order for them to prepare for the Messiah, the Jews needed to recognize their sin, they needed to come to be baptized, they needed to turn away from their sin, and then walk into their daily life with changed behavior. They need to be a righteous people. And that means it must, the repentance must continue. Now we're going to think deeper about this reality as we look at the next paragraph, but it is that, it's this command here that prompts the three groups of people to ask the questions that they do in verses 10 through 14, as we'll see. So John's point is that salvation found in the Messiah would only come to these people if they turn from their sin and continue to live a life consistent with that repentance. Their turn, they must turn, and it must be permanent. So, what does this paragraph mean for us? What does all this talk of judgment and and, and what not mean for us. Well, I believe that while John's message was to prepare the Jews of the first century for Jesus' first coming, that the warnings that are given here can prepare us for Jesus' second coming as well. In other words, these have application for us in the 21st century too. Because you see this, the Bible tells us that Jesus will return a second time. That he's going to come back, and he's not only going to save those who are his, but he's also going to bring judgment to those who aren't. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, talks about the, the saving part. It says, Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, this is our great hope. That Jesus is coming back to save us, to bring our salvation to full completion, full fruition, and we will be embraced in Christ. But Jesus will also return as judge. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. Acts 10, 42. Peter says this, And Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus was appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Every single person who has ever lived must give an account to God the Son. And so there's really two choices. There were two choices to John's audience. To continue in their sin, continue in the self-centered life, and, and, and experience destruction. Or to repent of their sin, to turn from that, to turn to Israel's Messiah who would uh, jump on the scene here very soon and to experience life and to be saved. And you see, folks, those same two choices are present to us today. Those same two choices are present to you this morning. Two choices that are presented before all mankind to either be on one path or the other. Jesus talked about these two paths. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and to those who find it are few. He says elsewhere, he says that you either need to repent or you perish. You either turn from your sin and get out of that wide path that leads to destruction, or you will be destroyed. You will perish. And so what is, this passage reminds us, folks, that destruction is real. Hell is a real place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The holy justice of God demands that he punish sin. And we know that modern man is repulsed by the concept of hell, a place of eternal torment. We, see, we naturally want God to grade on a curve. We say, well, we're not that bad, are we? I mean, I mean, can't you let something slide? And by the way, you're a God of love. You're a God of love. How can a God of love have a, have a, create a place called hell where he's tormenting sinners forever? I mean, shouldn't a God of love show some leniency? And I think if we're honest, we have to sympathize with this sentiment. Hell is a difficult doctrine. It's hard. We too, when thinking on a, on a purely human level, can see where people are coming from who have trouble accepting the Bible's teaching on hell. Because hell is truly a horrible place. I, I mean, we, to grapple with the fact that every single person is destined for that torment if they don't profess faith in Christ. But you see, our starting place for understanding the Bible's teaching of wrath and destruction and that John is preaching here, is the character of God. If we don't get God right, then hell won't make any sense to us. God, we know from the Bible, is declared to be holy. Isaiah 6 declares, the angels declare him as thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy. He dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6 says. He's perfectly righteous and pure. His, His eyes are too pure to look upon evil, Habakkuk chapter 1 13. And we know he's perfectly good and everything that he does is good. And so as the holy, awesome creator of this universe, he demands perfection and absolute obedience out of the creatures that he made out of dust called humans. He formed us, created us, and demands obedience. It's as simple as that. And yet the first two people to live failed to live up to the standard and therefore the The rebellion of mankind against an eternal God is eternal punishment. It's the character of God that demands this. We may not like it, but we cannot change it. We may not like it, but it is truth. It is what this world is built upon, that a holy God demands righteousness and obedience. And for all those who fail that, for all who reject him, they are punished forever in hell. The Bible says there's not a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins. We all stand condemned under the righteousness of God. Because, think about it, God would not be a just God if he let sinners go. We call a judge corrupt if he lets criminals escape their just punishment. A righteous judge deals out just sentences, and the just sentence upon each one of us is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And so the only way for you and I to escape punishment and hell forever is to trust in Jesus. 
Only Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, can offer salvation from God's wrath, which hangs over every single person's head. Listen to John 3, verse 36. John 3, 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son, that's Jesus, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God is on each one of us, and if we do not repent, we will perish. But see, the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but of everlasting life. Jesus provides the only way away from destruction. And so we need to hear the, the warning of John and we need to flee the wrath of God. I exhort you this morning that if you've been living a self-centered life, if you've been living your life for yourself and have no regard to the Lord, no regard for his word, no regard for Jesus Christ, then you are on the path of destruction. And yeah, it might feel good. It's the wide and easy path, Jesus said. But see that the flames are there. See the wrath of God is coming for you. That you deserve to be punished for your rebellion. Deserve to be punished for your sin. And, but you can flee today. The gate is, uh, of repentance is available to you if you would but turn and run to Jesus today. Don't wait another day. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to you. Do not try to convince yourself. Don't try to convince yourself that you were born into a Christian family. Just as the Jews couldn't trust in their lineage, so you can't trust your own. Don't try to convince yourself that you've got some good Christian friends. And therefore, you must be a Christian. Your security does not depend on your association with godly people. Your security must depend upon your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, each one of us needs to reckon with the God of this universe on our own, on our own merits. We need to come individually, confessing our sin, confessing our faith in Jesus, independently, individually. We cannot trust church attendance. We cannot trust any sort of good works or good deeds. We cannot trust any sort of association with Christian friends, Christian parents, or anything else. We must look at our hearts and see them as, as wretched and vile as they are. As the Bible tells us, the, the heart is, de is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart is desperately wicked. Confess it, repent of it, and turn to Jesus. Only by believing in him can you escape punishment and the wrath of God. But the good news is that it's available to you today. I mean, think about God's patience to you. He's, he's enabled you to live these many years. All the days that you've lived in rebellion against him, and yet, and yet you're here today hearing this truth with the opportunity to yet again repent, to turn away from your sin, and to confess Jesus as Lord, not you as Lord. To recognize that once you die, it is too late. There is no second chance on the other side of the grave. Your second chance or your 39th chance or your 1,000th chance is today. Don't let it waste. I pray that God would soften your heart, that you would turn to him and that you would repent, that you would see the realness of the wrath of God and that you would seek to flee for safety in the only place it is found and that is in Jesus Christ. Because the, the good news is that it's available to you today.
I just want to say, if you have any questions about where you stand with God, about how to find salvation, about things you're dealing with in your heart and life, please contact me. I'd love to talk with you about Jesus and how you might know the peace and the security of being on that narrow way and knowing the life that's found in him alone. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Well, this passage has shown us, number one, that repentance is required for divine forgiveness. Secondly, that repentance is motivated by looming judgment. And thirdly, it's going to show us here that repentance is evidenced by changed behavior. Repentance is evidenced by changed behavior. And we see this in verses 10 through 14. Verses 10 through 14. After John's short sermon about judgment, the people respond. They're cut to the heart. No doubt some disbelieved and doubted and said, yeah, whatever, I'm done with this crazy guy out here in the wilderness who, who's wearing camel hair and eat, eating locusts and honey. But others saw past all that, and they heard the word of truth, and they were cut to the heart. And they, and they come to him, and they, they recognize that they need to be reconciled. And so they go to John saying, Yes, I need what you have. I, I, I need to be changed. I, I, I need to change my life. And, and, and yet they needed more spiritual counsel. W- what specifically should I do? I, I know I need to be baptized, but after I come out of this water, what then do I do? They're looking for how they should change their lives. Now we had pointed out in verse 8, look at it again, verse 8, John had told them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so they were convicted that they needed to repent, they needed to bear some fruit, but they now wanted to know what fruits did they need to bear? What actions did they need to take? And verses 10 through 14 describes three groups of people coming to John for instruction, and they all ask the same question. They say, what shall we do? Three identical questions, three different answers. Now, there's similarities between John's answers, but they are each uniquely customized for the group asking the questions. Let's look at these these three interactions. The first interaction is with the crowds, it says. Verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What then shall we do? Again, we don't know who's all included in this crowd, but they want to know what they should do. Now, one thing you're not going to be able to pick up in our English that I want to point out to you, our English translations, is that the word for do, in verse 10, what shall we do, and the word back in uh, verse 8, translated bear, bear fruits, really come from the same uh, Greek root. And so, if we were to uh, translate that the, to keep that similarity in English so we could see it, it would, it would sound, verse 8 would say something like this. It would say, do fruit in keeping with repentance. And then they come and say, what shall we do? Do fruit, or, and we translate it, make fruit or bear fruit, as we would say. But they're basically saying, we hear you, John. You said to do something. What shall we do? They want to know what repentance entails. And verse 11 records John's answer. It says, And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And his answer is, is very practical. He doesn't tell them to go offer sacrifices. He doesn't tell them to go do some religious ritual. He says that they are to live differently with their fellow neighbor. They are to, to adopt a posture of generosity. 
and to share with those in need. And he uses two examples in everyday life to illustrate this point. First, he mentions tunics. They should share their tunics. The tunic mentioned here was a, a long garment that was worn next to the skin, kind of a, as like an undershirt or an undergarment. Uh, it was the first thing to be put on. And then there would be a longer cloak that would go on over that undergarment. And people would often, it seems, maybe even wear two of these tunics, or they might have an extra. They'd wear two to keep warm if need be. But for whatever the reason, John says that if you have two, to share with someone who has none. If there's somebody around you that doesn't have any, then, then see if you can give and, gen- and, 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 and be generous out of your surplus. And then he very simply says, and do, the like, do likewise with food. If you've got extra food and someone has no food, share with them. They are to give out of their abundance to help meet needs around them. We see also then the tax, first was the crowds, the first interaction. Secondly is the tax collectors, verses 12 through 13. It says, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? There's a couple things unique about the tax collector's interaction here. Number one, it says that they, it mentions that they came to be baptized. Now, we don't know if the crowds and the soldiers uh, didn't come to be baptized. I, I tend to think that they all came to be baptized. It just happens to mention that fact with the tax collectors, even though it was probably true of the other groups as well. But also, what's unique is that the tax collectors called John teacher, a sign of respect, a, t- a sign that they, they saw him as one who was dispensing God's truth. Tax collectors in that day were a group of people who were authorized to collect taxes for Rome. And there were two levels of taxes. One uh, was the direct or poll tax, and this was the amount required for each adult by Rome. Just the fact that you were a living, breathing adult in the Roman Empire, you had to pay a tax. Secondly would be indirect taxes like sales tax or customs tax when purchasing things. So these tax collectors were required to collect that for Rome. And they were hated by the Jews for two reasons. One, they worked for Rome. And Rome was their overlord, the oppressor, and they resented its control over them. But secondly, tax collectors would often use their position to exact more money than was necessary. Rome would ask for a certain amount, and then they would tack on a whole lot extra more and be able to pocket it. And so they essentially stole from the people for their own profit. profit. They were called robbers. And as the story of Zacchaeus shows in Luke 19, that people could get quite rich off of this profession. And so the, 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 the average pre- people in Israel were victims of the greed of tax collectors. And so they were hated by the people. But when they, it's in light of this context of their occupations, that when they come to John to ask what actions they should do in keeping with repentance, John gives them specific advice. He instructs them, instructs them, uh, verse 13, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Collect no more than you're authorized to do. In other words, they are to carry out their occupation with justice and righteousness. If they are to align themselves with God again, In repentance and baptism, they must now live and act as if they are aligned with God. And that means with justice and righteousness. It's important to know that John doesn't tell them to quit their jobs. 
In other words, tax collecting was not inherently a dishonorable business, but dishonest tax collecting was dishonorable. He simply says, reform your your profession. Reform your occupation. Do it as one who's following the Messiah. Now, the Bible affirms the government's authority to charge taxes of its citizens and the Christian's responsibility to pay those taxes. I believe that that these verses... uh, are an example of that position, but they're made ex- that, that, that biblical position is made explicit in Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. We don't have time to go there, but it describes the, uh, the ability for, governor, uh, for government to charge taxes. Well, we've seen the interaction with the crowds. We've seen the interaction with the tax collectors. Let's finally see the interaction with the soldiers. It, it says, verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? Now, these Soldiers, uh, some think that they were Roman soldiers stationed out of Syria and had, were in the area to keep the peace. But most believe they were Jewish mercenaries who were hired by Herod Antipas. And so they were, again, like tax collectors, they were Jews, but they were in occupations or roles that the Jews hated. Because these soldiers rarely protected the Jewish people, they rather protected Rome's interests. And they come asking John, wow, we, we've been living in sin. We aren't aligned with God. What should we do, John? And he says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. Again, John doesn't tell them to leave their profession. Soldiers, to be a soldier was a legitimate thing for them to be engaged in. But to function in that profession as a follower of Messiah, in preparation for Messiah, in alignment with the Lord, was to do it with righteousness and justice. You see, soldiers weren't paid much, and Rome turned a blind eye when they would pillage and they would, they would use their, their, violent, their position in a violent way to extort money and other things from villagers and from the, the citizenry. But John tells them, listen, if you're going to repent, if you're going to turn from your sin, if you're going to be a different kind of man, then you must not do this any longer. You cannot extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. They can't use their position. They can't use their swords. They can't use the threats as a way to get what they want. And he also says, ends with his, his, his instruction with a command. Be content with your wages. Contentment is the opposite of greed. Soldiers driven by greed to accumulate more for themselves, really the same thing driven by the tax collectors were driven by. Rather, they should be content. Instead of jealously looking for what they don't have, they were to be happy and content with what they did have. In each of these cases, the crowd, the tax collectors, and the soldiers They were to prepare themselves for the arrival of the Messiah by turning from specific sins and living righteous lives. There was to be evidence of their repentance. Repentance is to be evidenced by changed behavior. And John makes that explicit as he declares to these three groups, you can't just make a mental ascent, crowds. You can't just have remorse of heart, tax collectors. You can't just think that, that you're going to think differently, soldiers. You must change how you live. You must change your behavior. 
And so from these three interactions, I believe three principles emerge for us today. From these three interactions, three principles emerge. The first principle is this, the activity of repentance. The activity of repentance. You see, John's message was not just one of internal change. He didn't just want people to feel bad about their sin. He didn't just want them to admit that they were sinners estranged from God, although he did. He called them to action, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, this call to repentance was therefore a call to not just internal change, but also external change. And particularly that linking together of internal and external does a couple things. First, it shows the authenticity of the repentance. In other words, if repentance has truly taken place, then the change will be evident. There will be actions that follow. And therefore, it it, it secondly uh, brings repentance to its completion. In other words, I believe what John is saying is that we can't claim that we've repented unless we begin to see this changed behavior. That just to be remorseful, just to feel shame, just to confess, and just to commit before God, I'm going to be different, is not the full completion of repentance. It must move towards faith and obedience to God in order to show that we have truly repented, i.e., we've truly turned away from sin and turned towards God. If we haven't begun to act like God, if we haven't begun to obey God, how can we say that we've turned toward God? And if if we don't see that change, then it's good reason to ask, have we truly turned? Have we really made that 180? Or are we still pursuing sin? Repentance is not complete until this change has occurred in our lives. And this is not the only place we see this in the Bible. In fact, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, Paul makes the same the same point. As he's talking to the New Testament church about how they are to live differently, they're not to walk in the ways the Gentiles walk, they're not to walk in their old manner of life, but to walk in newness of life because they're in Jesus. But he says that there's to be a change that should be noticed. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 says, uh, you are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So again, we're to put off, we're to be renewed, and we're to put on. This is that process of turning, the process of repentance, that we turn away from our sin, we change how we think about it, we, we are remorseful over it, we we look at the delightfulness of God and His Word and the, and, and the beauty of His way. And then we begin to put on and to live this new life. We put on the new self. And, and the thing is, as Paul illustrates this in the next verse, verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. In other words, to repent of lying is not just to stop lying. To repent of lying is to speak truth. You see how there should be a change in behavior? How there's actions, there's fruit that must be born in keeping with repentance? He goes on. 
Look in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Again, a thief, someone who's a robber, isn't just to stop thieving, but is to now give, to be generous with what they have. This is the message of the Bible, that repentance is not complete until there's external change in our lives. Many people will be remorseful over their sin, but that does not mean they've repented. They will confess their sin. They will be sad. There will be many tears. They'll be sad over the damage that they've caused to loved ones. But repentance is not complete until there is changed behavior. Repentance involves being cut to the heart over our sin and then being good in our behavior and generous to others. We must stop the sin but we must positively put on the character of Christ. The second principle I see in these interactions in, back in Luke chapter 3 is the similarity of repentance, meaning that if we look at all of these answers that John gave to this crowd, they're all very similar responses. And the point is this, that you are, if you're, you're to turn away from being self-centered to being God-centered. And if you're God-centered, then you're going to love other people. This is the, think of the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you get your relationship with God right, you're going to get your relationship with other people right. If you realign yourself with God, then you're going to, it's going to change how you interact with other people. That's why we, people can know that we are disciples by our love for one another. Because it should change how we interact with, other, with one another. The fruit of the Spirit this character that God is producing in us, the fruit of the Spirit, if you read through that list in Galatians chapter 5, they are a list of character traits that are expressed in community. They're expressed in relationship. In other words, Paul is saying there, if we, we can either walk by the flesh or walk by the Spirit, if we walk by the Spirit, it's going to change how we interact with other people. There's going to be visible change. There's going to be love and gentleness and faithfulness and joy that's going to be expressed to other people. You see, repentance and faith in Jesus changes how we live and how we interact and change, uh, live with other people. The fruit of biblical repentance is doing good to other people, is doing good. The third and final principle from these verses I'm calling the disparity of repentance. We saw the activity of repentance, that uh, repentance does something, the similarity of repentance, and that is that all, all repentance should result in, in changing our behavior towards other people. And thirdly, is the disparity of repentance, meaning that there's, in one sense, a difference in the way that each of us repent. Yes, there's a similarity, but there's also a difference. We all struggle with different things. We all have different sins that have taken root, different idols that our heart loves to return to, different things that tempt us particularly. Now, none of us have been tempted or have sins in our hearts and lives that are absolutely unique to humanity. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken us such as common to man. Therefore, the temptations that come to us, others have had those temptations as well. But, even within our own households, we each have unique temptations. Some of us tend towards anxiety. Some of us tend towards anger. Some tend towards lust. Some tend towards worry. We have all of these different sins that are Uh, what Hebrews 12 talks about is our besetting sins or the sins that so easily trip us up. 
Some sins might trip you up significantly, but, it, but not trip me up at all. I don't have any problem fighting that sin. And therefore, I don't really need to repent of it, but you do. And then there might be sins that I am particularly susceptible to that are no issue for you. And so the point is this. Just as these three groups needed to discern what were the specific areas they needed to repent in, friends, we must evaluate our hearts and lives and see where do we today need to repent of sin. What is it in your life that you need to repent of? What are the idols that you've been secretly harboring and loving? What are the sins that you continue to nourish and continue to feed and continue to return to? Is it maybe a a stinginess? a lack of generosity, a a love of your possessions. That's what John was confronting in uh, in the crowds. He tells them to give, to be ready and generous to give. Is that the case for you? Are you stingy with your possessions, stingy with your financial resources? Or are you able to give generously to those around you? Maybe you're hurting those around you, using your position of authority, or using, simply using your words to, to harm those in your circle of influence, and particularly during this time and season uh, in which you're at home? Are you treating people with a lack of love? We need to discern our hearts and see where it is that we need to repent. Again, I can't tell you where you need to repent, but you must ask God to reveal that in your own heart and your own life. Folks, There are so many things going on in our world today. So many things that can distract us. So many things that can capture our attention. And there are big pressing matters on the world stage that we've got to deal with in the world and in our country. No doubt about it. But let me say this. The most important thing is that we have a right relationship with God. The most important thing is where we will spend eternity. The most important thing is how we live for Christ in these days. We have an opportunity to show ourselves to be Christ's disciples. And that that means that that we may need to share with our next-door neighbors, with others in the body. There already is and there will continue to be those who are hurting, those who are in need of help. And we may see some of our own sins surfaced during this time. But I pray that by God's grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can see our lives continually transformed even during these strange times. And as we walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, we will begin to see the Spirit's fruit bearing in our lives as it's popping up. But this beautiful fruit cannot be born, cannot come into our lives without us walking through the door of repentance. May God give us the grace today to truly repent. Let's pray. Our Father, Indeed, we ask that you would please grant us the grace of repentance. Show us, Father, where we need to turn from our sin, where we need to put off our old self, and we need to put on Christ. I pray, Lord, that if there are those listening that do not know your Son, that have not repented of their sin, that you would grant them new life today, that you might enable them to be brought to their knees in repentance and faith, looking to Jesus alone for their safety from the wrath to come. And we'll give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.